and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Bellow, Professor of Radiology and Neurosurgery at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Director of Neuroradiology at Montefiore Medical Center, and Chair of the Board of Chancellors of the American College of Radiology. Since committing 14 years to Columbia University as a student, trainee, and junior faculty member, Dr. Bellow has been a steady presence on the faculty of Montefiore Medical Center for over 32 years. Over the past 13 of these years, she has been increasingly active across a number of professional organizations, serving as president of the American Society of Neuroradiology, chief of the Montefiore medical staff, in addition to her current role as chair of the ACR Board of Chancellors. As a regular listener to this podcast, I assume that you are interested in leadership and the leadership journey of some of radiology's most influential leaders. But what about your own leadership journey? If you're feeling lost in the spreadsheets, data, politics, and relationships it takes to navigate today's health system, I'd like to encourage you to register for the Maximize Your Influence and Impact course. In this 12-week virtual program, you'll learn how to align radiology with your hospital boardroom and better steward your organization's operations, finances, and relationships. Live 90-minute virtual sessions include a faculty presentation with Q&A throughout the session. Each session is recorded so that if you're unable to join, you can review the content later. The RLI Maximize course provides foundational leadership knowledge and the skills to lead, nurture, and negotiate like a pro. Start your new year off with confidence by attending the RLI Maximize Your Influence and Impact course. Learn more and register today at acr.org influence hyphen and hyphen impact. The program starts January 19th, so don't wait. Jacqueline, welcome. Glad to be here. We're very glad to have you. Let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born at Columbia Presbyterian Medical School. And of the seven Bellow children, I'm the only child, second born, who was delivered by a medical student. Wow. So when you say seven Bellow children, that means you have six brothers and sisters? Right. Very impressive. And everybody was born at Columbia. Everybody was born at Columbia by mom's private OB, with the exception of me. Being the second, her labor went quickly. I was born eight minutes after she got there, delivered by a medical student. Have you stayed in touch with that medical student? (laughs) No, but every time I lecture students, I say, whatever you go into, promise me you'll pay attention in OB because one of you delivered me. Nice. So your parents are from New York? Mom is from upstate New York, and dad is from Yonkers, New York. And they met up at Bassett Hospital in Cooperstown, which is a Columbia affiliate. And mom was a microbiologist, and dad was an intern. Finished his medical school at Columbia and became a radiation oncologist. 
So how many generations back does your family go in New York City? All four of my grandparents were born in Italy, so we're out of luck there. Okay, so we found the inflection point. And you're number two of seven, and what's the age split from oldest to youngest? There is a 14-age difference between the oldest and the youngest. Five girls and two who suffered, the boys. Three girls and then boy, girl, boy, girl. While you were growing up, were you living in Manhattan? Outside of Manhattan, in Westchester, New York, the county of Westchester, Rye, New York. I imagine that the practice of medicine was a steady presence for you all growing up? It was. I was the only one who would refuse to go to bed at night. From the age of two, I was allowed to stay up as long as I sat in a big green chair in my parents' bedroom. And in the beginning, they tell the story of setting alarms to check on me, and I would be sitting there, turning the pages carefully. I loved books. And Dad found the biggest book he could, which was Gray's Anatomy. And they would find me turning the pages of Gray's Anatomy. Was that a book that you stuck with for many years, or did you grow out of it? (laughs) It's in the rearview mirror now, for sure. I can only wonder about the perception of some of those anatomic diagrams at that age. Were you a particularly close family? Did you have dinners together? As a matter of fact, I was the only one in my kindergarten class who was not in bed by 8 o'clock. And when I was asked why, first of all, I didn't like to sleep still. But the real reason why is we always waited for dad for dinner. So we always had family dinners together. We always had a big Sunday dinner and brought some next door to our neighbors who were elderly. We grew up as really a team that pitched in, ate leftovers, wore hand-me-downs, but had built-in best friends. Most days in the summer, up on Lake Otsego, which is outside of Cooperstown. Cooperstown sits on one end of the lake, and our little camp sat at the other end of the lake. And we would all, after the day's chores, get out on the boat and take turns water skiing. I'll tell you, it is painful to grow up with two brothers who don't let you back into the boat until you've gotten up on one ski. And you swallowed half of the lake of water up your nose trying. And when you were all together at the dinner table, what was the conversation like? So that is a family classic because we were always asked how your day went. Most of us cut right to the chase. You know, I went to school and then I had cheerleading practice and then I came home or I had a piano lesson or I practiced the piano. And then there is my sister, Susan, the girl born between the two boys. And Susan would start with, well, I got on the bus and it just went blow by blow. And my brothers would constantly interrupt her and they were told never to say shut up. So they used the euphemism, not of general interest. That's what they were told to say. She's the only one who failed both her written and practical driving test out of the seven kids. 
I lived with her when she was in nursing and I was a resident in New York City. And one day in April, I said to Susan, Susan, I'm going to be home late today. I'm going to see the accountant to do my taxes. And Susan, straight faced, head nurse at the Cornell neonatal ICU, looked at me and said, is there a deadline? There's not an illegal alien in this country that doesn't know the meaning of April 15th. But Susan came from another world, but ran that neonatal ICU, hands down, 57 census, and she's the most patient person that I know. It sounds like she's probably developed a fairly thick skin. You bet. And poor thing attended high school dances with the boys born on either side of her. And they would stand there with their hands folded across their chest every time she was asked to dance, just glaring at whoever it was. She happens to be the prettiest one. But in Italy, they say that that distinction belongs to the girl born between two boys. And you mentioned that you spent a little time cheerleading. Oh, yeah. I was captain of my cheerleading team. All girls high school. We were field hockey champions. We were basketball champions. I've carried that cheerleading spirit with me forever. I often introduce myself just that way. What led you into cheerleading? I was always into gymnastics and the like. And secondly, I've always been a team spirit person and was very proud of all of the teams that had all of these winning streaks. I played some of the sports myself and at four ten and a half actually scored the first two points in Columbia Medical School women's basketball history against Cornell, I might add. I really loved cheerleading and watching the sports. I went to Dartmouth College in its first year of co-education, where really only our class were in favor of the decision to go co-ed. There weren't too many cheerleading options available. But I was asked to help train the track team. I loved to run, and they had me run with the hurdlers, but not do the hurdling. And then they had me actually time the hurdlers and help coach them from the side. So that was a form of cheerleading, but it was more singular than a team sport. Was being captain of the cheerleading squad your first leadership role? No, I was president of my class before I was captain of the cheerleading squad. I'd say that was probably my first leadership role. To what do you attribute your pursuit of that role at a tender age? I think getting along with others, which is really the first step that is important in leadership. You have to have the buy-in and the trust. So I had grown up as the second oldest of seven kids, and that was the way we rolled. And so it came pretty naturally. And being one of the older ones, I was sort of built-in babysitter and helper for a lot of the younger ones. And Susan, who I've already regaled you with stories about, was actually the sibling that I was closest to. And she is third from the bottom. And I think having that sort of mentoring guardianship role carried over. 
and taking care of others and not letting anyone be left behind. Was that something that your parents actively encouraged everyone to pursue, taking care of one another? Or did that just kind of come organically? They absolutely instilled that in us. I'm lucky to still have them. They're 97. And two of dad's sayings have just stuck with me like glue and have been so important when it comes to leadership. And one was, just remember, you can be 100% right. And if your attitude is wrong, you are dead wrong. And the other one was to stand up for what you believe in, never stepping on anybody else's toes. And I think that, again, that advice is pretty good advice. That's fantastic. And when you think back to your time as student body president and head of the cheerleading squad, are there any leadership lessons that you can recall? I can think of one in particular. I mentioned liking the training and liking the activity and the gymnastics. One thing I didn't like, never being overly tall, was going over the horse. And I would avoid that, but I soon learned the importance of doing it, trying it, and falling, and being one of the others. Unfortunately, it landed me on my ankle sideways once with an instant grapefruit at the side of my ankle. So it was a painful lesson, but the trying it anyway, you're not above doing what everyone else is doing, I think really stuck with me. I've used a favorite line of mine many times with my fellows, which is that if I ever hear that something is not your job, I will do my best to make sure that it's no longer your job. I'm sure I would get written up for that today, but I've never asked anyone to do something that I haven't done or am not willing to do myself. Absolutely. So after high school, you mentioned you went to Dartmouth. First class to admit women. When you applied to Dartmouth, no doubt you knew that this was the condition that you would be entering and you probably had other options. What led you to gravitate to this particular scenario? Well, it's interesting the way you phrase it, because actually I had an interview at Smith and an interview at Wellesley and a day in between. And my dad was in charge of the college tour. And dad said, just pick another school because we're not going to go home from New England in between. And one of my friends in the public high school had gone to Dartmouth and loved it. And I said, okay, well, let's take a look at Dartmouth. Now there's a backstory. My dad's a Harvard grad for undergrad and Columbia Medical School. But he said, Dartmouth isn't co-ed. You also need to know that this was Columbus Day weekend and the trustees were meeting to vote on October 21st. I said, no, they're not, but I understand that they may become co-ed. And so it's worth taking a look at. And if you've ever been to Hanover, New Hampshire, I mean, it is college town, USA. It is a beautiful campus. It is 
a place that the students who go there just absolutely loved. And I didn't meet, other than the senior giving the tour that day, I didn't meet one unhappy person there. The senior giving the tour said, I feel compelled to tell the group, and he zeroed right in on me and was looking at me, that Dartmouth right now is not a co-ed institution. And no decision is going to be made until later this month. And I think that was part of the attraction right there. You know, it's always a challenge, especially when it's a place as strong scholastically and as gorgeous in terms of the campus and peaceful. I was really taken in by the Connecticut River and what I still to this day call a Hanover blue sky. It was a gorgeous fall day. I just felt that I could be okay there. And I think that was probably part of it. And then I did not get in other than on the waiting list. And I'm not bragging, but as first in my high school class, I could have gone to other places. And I was fortunate to have a guidance counselor who called just about every day wanting to know the status of my standing as I had to respond to other places soon. And I got in off the waiting list, and I've never looked back. So what did you study while at Dartmouth? That's a great story because I was a biology major and I was one course shy in chemistry of being a double major. And the course that I needed was an advanced PCHEM, physical chemistry course. And it was being given fall term senior year. And I had the option of traveling as a language assistant to Florence being a TA for Italian while I was taking art history and Italian culture classes. It was a tough decision to make because I wanted to go to medical school. Fall term is when a lot of your interviews are. And I thought that being a double major in science would help me a lot. And I went to my PCAM professor His name was Robert Ditchfield, and he spoke with an English accent. And I said, Professor Ditchfield, I need your advice. I have this option, and I'm tempted. I don't know the impact it'll have on schools, but I tend to write them ahead of time and offer to go early if I merit an interview. And he said, so it's not such a hard decision then. I said, well, unfortunately it is. I really want to be in medical school. And what bothers me more than being okay with either decision is at this point in my life, feeling like it's impossible for me to make a decision. And I guess it took hearing it from a professor. He said to me, I know you pretty well from PCHEM 1. And I know from your seriousness that you have super low lows when they come and no one more excited over a high when it comes. And he said, I'm just going to think about it scientifically and tell you that someday you're going to find a nice plane to live on and you'll do just fine. And I decided to 
take the opportunity to study abroad. I'll tell you selfishly, because I love to read. I don't especially like to write, but I'm fine once the first paragraph gets written. I'm the pen to the paper procrastinator, and then I'm fine. I've written poems about being a pre-med easily, but I was not ever going to be an English lit person with a paper due every 20 minutes and get through it. So the trip abroad was a way to get a bunch of humanities out of the way in a language that I was comfortable speaking, having taken advanced placement French, and it's another romance language. I assume that looking back, you have no regrets. No regrets at all. At what point did you decide that you wanted to be a physician? When I was a freshman in high school. And what led to it? If you go back to the construct of the family, there were three girls before there was ever any boy. And I was really, in many ways, my dad's first son. I quite literally used to follow him around. I knew before I went to college how to do electric wiring of an outlet because dad was a do-it-yourself dad. And if someone was coming in to do work, he would be right there with them, watching, learning. As my brothers used to love to say, editing. They called him, Ed, I've got a better way, Bellow. I think that I admired what he did. And so all through Dartmouth, you knew where you were headed. And when it came time to decide where you were going to go for that medical education, was it much of a contest to choose Columbia versus anywhere else? I had written to the schools I was applying to. And from a certain New York State school, I got a response that said, you're severely compromising your chances at admission to medical school. And I got an interview at that school anyway. From Harvard, I got a response that said, if you're in the Boston area at all, between now and then, let us know and we'll interview you and count it if we would have interviewed you and not count it if we wouldn't. And it turns out that my Dartmouth roommate was from Boston. And so I was going to be visiting her family for a while. And Harvard interviewed me based on that. At what point did you decide that radiology was the field for you? Well, no surprise here. I loved anatomy. But I think influenced by my childhood and growing up with so many sibs, I first migrated to peds. So I made sure I did that as my first clerkship. And at Columbia, you do peds and OB sequentially. And for all of PEDS, it was either ear infection, asthma, asthma, ear infection, or hemolytic uremic syndrome. And the front stuff was boring. The hemolytic uremic syndrome was so challenging, but terrible for the kid. And so I said, well, maybe it'll be OB then. And as a Columbia medical student in six weeks, I delivered 19 kids, and just being frank, that also got pretty boring, unless it was mom versus child, and then as interesting as that can be, it's also not always great for the patients. So 
took my anatomy interest and loved orthopedics because of the x-rays and realized after being in the OR with the patient asleep the whole time that I really, you know, liked the x-rays more than the taking care of sleeping patients or having someone else put on a cast and check it. I followed the anatomy. And it was at a time when cross-sectional anatomy was coming to fruition. We did have one of the first ME scanners for CT. And then it was only during my fellowship that the MRI scanner was actually being built by my mentor, Sada Kalal, at the Neurological Institute. So it was literally unfolding before our eyes, the potential to see this. The upside of that was that everything seemed to come first to neuro and then find its way through the rest of the body. It's unbelievable, but I never had to learn the cross-sectional anatomy of the bronchial tree because it wasn't there yet. I can help you with that. No, I take a pass. Thanks. (laughs) I love neuro. It was always the most challenging. And again, because so much had not been uncovered yet, I really thought I could do it all. And you quickly learned that if I'm going to do everything, I have to get better at neuro. And once I did my fellowship, I never looked back. And it was then that things were really differentiating into body part radiology. I highly respect those who can still practice general and do it well. I just fell in love with neuro and never looked back. So you were drawn into neuroradiology in part because of the technology development that first gravitated there. As you mentioned at the time, there were still pneumoencephalography chairs in the department. I imagine that you foresaw a future for the field that was very different from the one that you were exposed to as a resident. Absolutely, especially since It was literally unfolding before my eyes in the basement of the Neurological Institute. And if you remember, I don't know when you trained, but, you know, you really can figure out a whole lot from a skull film if you know all of those different anatomic lines, let alone the numerous ones that you have to draw in. Again, I love a good challenge. And I'm one of the few people who can still give a lecture on interpreting a skull film. You continued at Columbia to pursue your fellowship. In fact, you went to Columbia for your residency too. You know, talk us through that sort of commitment to Columbia through those various transitions as opposed to diversifying your educational exposure. It was just so rewarding at my 25th anniversary dinner at Columbia. I congratulated the class on the fact that it turns out that we were taught by two Nobel laureates. Eric Kandel was one, well known for memory and behavior. I said to my class, they received their Nobel prizes after we graduated. It's amazing what students can teach their professors. And quite honestly, it was the other way around, clearly. And 
Fast forwarding to internship at Bassett Hospital, all of the different medicine section chiefs had turned down chairmanships at other institutions to be at Bassett Hospital. And the other institutions were the likes of Strong Memorial in Rochester and, you know, solid places. And it was just such a wealth of knowledge and at the same time, very approachable individuals, people who wanted. I think Columbia pretty much had a reputation for that. One third of my medical school class was women. And that was at a time when that so-called gentleman had interviewed me for a state school about being married or being engaged. And when was I going to get engaged? And I frankly told him probably sometime before I get married. And I had just about had it. But Columbia was very open, very welcoming. The class was a great class. In fact, to this day, we have a record. Ten people in my class married ten other people in my class. Very loving environment. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't one of them. So two years of neuroradiology fellowship, which was the norm back then. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you finally come to the end of the journey, of the training journey, and where do you decide your next phase will be? Well, it's interesting that I was actually put on faculty during my second year of fellowship, and I stayed on a few more years. Having finished fellowship in 86, I did not move until 1990, and it was, again, a chance to lead. It was a chance to direct the division of neuroradiology at Montefiore and at the same time start a fellowship training program of my own. So your first few years, as you mentioned, you stayed on at Columbia for another five years or so. And tell us a little bit about what your focus was during those five years while you were at Columbia. I was mostly teaching and I was running the clinical department. There was one August in my second year, and it was after that August. So my second year started in July. That August, for two weeks, there were no attendings in the department. Now understand, this is before the limit on training from Medicare. This was Columbia paying us. In fact, as fellows, we read out ER studies at night with the radiology resident, general radiology. So we were used as junior attendings. But I was asked to stay on in neuro after those two weeks, having really run the service. For half of the second week, one of the attendings had come back from vacation. And our chief, Sada Kalal, was sometimes in the area, but for a day at a time, giving lectures elsewhere and working with his PhDs off-site. And so it was a time when the Neurological Institute was just the place for anything to be diagnosed, to be managed, to be operated. And it was just so, so exciting. And I spent most of my time teaching and teaching the residents and fellows. 
And I noticed that early in your academic career, you were awarded a NIH R01 from the National Institute of Mental Health titled Behavioral Correlates of Magnetic Resonance in HIV Disorders. Even amongst research-oriented radiologists, being PI on an NIH R01 is an uncommon accomplishment. Tell us about that work and how it led to the grant funding. HIV AIDS really came about during my internship. And right about then is when I was returning to Columbia. And Columbia had such a robust ID army working. And immediately, as we saw with COVID, just rewind the clock two years, the plethora of articles that came out about imaging this in COVID and imaging that in COVID and how you can see the lung changes on a C-spine study that was done from the ER, you know, if you look at the top of the lung fields. So things were moving fast with the diagnosis side and the radiology side. And at neuro, our behavioral neuroscientists were out in front of any disease, whether it was the behavioral aspects of people with movement disorders, whether it was the AIDS population. And there was a separate freestanding psychiatric institute. And so, again, all of the pieces were in the right place where imaging would be one piece of a huge puzzle. And rather than having to go and find the piece, the pieces were just falling onto the puzzle board and needed very little assembling into the right places. All you had to do was be a good collaborator, be an honest collaborator. No, this isn't atrophy. Sorry, but play again soon. Because people to this day love to play the game. What is more common anyway? Tox or lymphoma? Tox or lymphoma? And the answer, sorry to blow the answer for the ABR here, the answer is atrophy in HIV. It was just a time to learn so much from each other. It's a lot easier than it would seem. So teaching and research, you're pretty engaged and really making quite an impact. And then four years into your time on the faculty, you moved across town to Albert Einstein College of Medicine, became the director of neuroradiology at Montefiore, position that you have now held for 32 years. What led you to pursue the move from Columbia to Einstein? I loved teaching, I loved the fellows, and I wanted to start a fellowship training program. To this day, they call themselves Bellow Fellows, and I have over 50 of them. The populations, by the way, are not too dissimilar. The immediate neighborhoods are not too dissimilar. The only thing holding me back, but not for very long, was the fear that that geographically close to the Neurological Institute, it's an 11 minute drive, by the way, I would not be at all challenged professionally. And it turns out insurance wise and referral pattern wise, the five boroughs of Manhattan may as well be neighboring states. And it was every bit as interesting and when I say I wasn't held back for long, I really cheated in a way. Two of my classmates from my medical school class 
had one directly and one by way of trying on private practice first, ended up at Montefiore in neurosurgery. And I can tell you now, not then, but now married to a neurosurgeon for 28 years, I'm here to verify that their long suit is not patients, the kind with CE. And I knew that these two guys were not going to sit around with all of their Columbia training and be bored unless it was every bit as interesting. One of them, world famous for the neurosurgery he did separating the craniopagus twins that were joined at the head, if you'll remember that from, gosh, it's about 15 years ago now. And sadly, we lost him to COVID. The public health emergency was declared, I think it was on March 16th, and Dr. James Goodrich died on March 30th of 2020, before vaccines, before we even knew how to treat. And I had worked very closely with him on that twins project. And it was the kind of collaboration that we had both grown up with at Columbia. So, Bello, tell me, why do you think this is a vein and I can take it? And I said, Jim, arteries get smaller when they're going where they're going and veins get bigger. I'm telling you, it's a vein. Trust me. And we were doing 3D modeling. And to his credit, he had the foresight. The problem with twins drawn at the head is that they can share much of if not most of the superior sagittal sinus. And so if you go about it slowly in staged operations, these kids will find alternative drainage pathways for themselves. And that's something that we learned as we were on the runway flying the plane that we could get away with. And so in four stages, that set was separated and we started getting the films and the surgical plans on many other sets from around the world. It was pretty much a sure shot once I realized that these two guys there were plenty busy, that academically for me, there was gonna be plenty of opportunity training fellows and I had the support of the institution. And then I'll tell you what one of my interviewers said to me. When I asked him, the chair of pathology and a neuropathologist, Harry Zimmerman, a gold cane awardee in neuropathology. I said, Dr. Zimmerman, you tell me why I should come to Montefiore. And without looking down at any papers in front of him, he said to me, having looked carefully and digested my CV, he said, Dr. Bello, the ground for this medical school began when you did it was broken in 1954. You share something very important in common. And I said, you know what? It's going to be great. And it was. It is. Montefiore is very fortunate to have you join. I think that that story of attraction is quite inspiring. As you took over, you mentioned about 
the attraction of starting a neuroradiology fellowship. What other responsibilities did you have as director of neuroradiology? What other responsibilities? So the curriculum for the residents. We never had a resident fail, neurosection of the boards. And to this day, I still interview for resident selection. And when you ask the time-honored question, tell me why Montefiore, you know, there are seven training programs inside of New York City. And they tell you because of the track record for teaching, you know, that is a sense of satisfaction that is pretty cool. How has the role evolved over the years? It never became a turf battle with neurosurgery. And I'm just so thankful for that. In that, anesthesia had abdicated the pain medicine field, and we inherited that field. So nerve root blocks, ganglion blocks. We even were the first to do vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty. And on the vascular side, I had sent ahead of me somebody trained in interventional. And then our first fellow is the current chief of interventional. So we were doing interventional at Montefiore before neurosurgery ever dreamed of doing it. And when they eventually began doing it, they sent folks who were neurosurgery residents to go train and come back and do it. So we were always the more experienced. And that began a very close and collaborative relationship that I am just so fortunate for. And people think that I live on the moon when I describe it. But to this day, it has just been terrific. So I didn't have a lot of turf battles to fight. And I had a lot of holes to plug. People dependent on intricate temporal bone interpretations for pediatric ears. And it was something that we had lived and breathed at Columbia. And I give Montefiore all the credit in the world. They were very into developing And for that matter today, something I tell our resident candidates, there's no organ that's transplanted in New York City that we don't transplant at Montefiore. And when it comes to pediatric hearts, we do have the best numbers. So it's sophisticated. It is challenging in terms of the population. We are in the poorest urban county in the United States. If you take away the word urban, then Appalachia has the distinction, whether or not you consider it winning or losing, but it is the poorest urban county. And with that comes a great sense of satisfaction and a great sense of serving that community. And we've got a great track record for doing that. But as I tell the candidates, it's not just about being Mother Teresa. We are also quite sophisticated. Just look at our transplant program. Your initial appointment as an assistant professor began in 1985, and you moved to Montefiore in 1990. You subsequently held escalating leadership roles within a number of organizations, including the American Society of Neuroradiology, the American Medical Association, 
and the American College of Radiology and the Montefiore Medical Staff Organization, to name a few. Your engagement in formal committee work and ultimately officer roles seems to have begun around 2009. 24 years after you began as an assistant professor and 19 years after becoming director of neuroradiology at Montefiore. After so many years of modest engagement with professional organizations, what led to the sudden burst of activity that since 2009 appears to continue to this day? A couple of things. One, I began having more time in 2009 because I stopped doing neurointerventional then. And I had attended my first few AMA meetings and saw the importance of being there while the sausage of health policy was being made. And when I said I had already attended a few, I had gotten married in 1994 and had attended AMA meetings. My husband, a neurosurgeon, had been head of the Council on Long Range Planning and ultimately served on the Board of Trustees and then became the first neurosurgeon to be president of the AMA. So really, it was a lot of cheerleading on the sidelines to begin with. And then when he was finished with his immediate past president year, which came about in 2012, I decided that it was time for me to take up the banner and do something at the AMA. And I think that once people saw that activity and the ACR activity, It was only through that back door that my specialty encouraged me to pursue leadership. And as I said in public this past May, when I was asked to give a lecture at the ASNR, following none other than Bob Grossman, mind you, talk about feeling like an altar boy after the Pope has spoken, I was asked the question, When did I know that I would eventually lead at the ASNR? And I answered it seemingly without thinking, which was once I lost my first election. And I did. I ran for the nominating committee and I lost. And there again was a challenge. And I really felt that I had something to contribute. And I had already seen the difference I had been able to make on the Council on Medical Education at the AMA. So I had a respectful dose of confidence and I ran again. And so for many years, for the reasons that you described, you were so engaged locally at Montefiore in building the fellowship, in expanding neuroradiology, the collaborations, the innovative medical practice. And then suddenly, boom, you're pursuing all these activities. How did you find time? What did you give up in order to start doing all of these things with the ASNR and the AMA and the ACR? As I mentioned, I did give up neurointerventional and just went 
to straight diagnostics. You can't work on a patient and then leave town. You can't, you know, it's one thing I've always been very proud of um, is the ownership we have of our responsibility at Montefiore. From the time I got there, neuro initially was the only subspecialty that read across the entire enterprise instead of saying, no, this isn't a Moses case. That's the main campus. This is a Weiler case. We read it all. And if you think about it, it made sense because neurosurgery was the same team across the enterprise. And so we had the relationship with them. But the found time came from stepping away from the neurointerventional table, for one. The found time also came from the three sons, who, again, I cheated. I inherited my children. My husband had my children for me. They were grown. And so there were fewer trips to this college or that college to go visit or this ski meet or that wrestling match. It also helped at the same time being married to someone who was equally committed both to his practice of neurosurgery, but then also to organized medicine. And it meant fewer vacation vacations. If a meeting was in a nice place, we'll stay two days. And that was our vacation time. So I'd like to dive into each organization a little bit more deeply, and starting with the ASNR. In 2009, you joined both the membership committee, the program committee, and became chair of the rules committee. One year later, you were a member of the executive committee and the board of directors, ultimately leading to your service as president of the ASNR in 2017. Take us through this journey and how you jumped from member of committees to executive leader within such a short period of time. So that happened largely because of what was happening in tandem at the AMA and ACR and their recognition of the importance of knowing the health system. So the way in which leaders in medicine are destined to be successful is by understanding the health system as well as whatever their corner of the earth is clinically. And I think that my ability to connect those dots was, first of all, something I enjoyed, and secondly, something that was recognizable. I think that it came naturally in that sense that I was able to bring what I was learning in medical education at the AMA to medical education inside of ASNR and how that system needed to evolve. And similarly in health policy, the ASNR has a very strong health policy committee, but we sure sat back and took notes when it came to watching the ACR in action at both the RUC and the CPT panels. Reflecting on the ASNR during your period of leadership, how has it evolved? Wow, it has just exploded. It used to be a mothership with many different interest societies, and now each of those is a separate society. I'm talking about head and neck, peds, interventional, spine, and now functional. 
And it's sort of the same story as with, you know, being a general radiologist and now there's just so much in each specialty. Well, inside of neuro, there is so much, even without AI, but then you add the layer of AI to any one or all of those and it has just exploded. I can't think of a better word. It's also become, I think, much more relevant to people in all types of practice. And Carolyn Meltzer has written a beautiful article on the old versus new way of the ASNR, where Ann Osborne was the first woman to be president. And it was some number of teen years until the next one came. And then in rapid succession, there have been many more. And she calls it a tipping point. And I think that it became more relevant to women. It became more relevant to people in private practice who really had to know the temporal bone, whether or not they were going to write the next paper on what MR sequence to use for cholesteatoma of the temporal bone. I would say the explosion of content and subject matter expertise that was required and the explosion of it being much more relevant across membership. Very interesting description and exposition about that change, and in particular, the explosion you referred to. How does the ASNR spin off all those organizations and still maintain the same level of connectedness and relevance across the breadth of neuroradiologic practice and not lose a lot of that momentum to those satellite societies? It's not without challenge. I was in the leadership as a lot of that challenge came to bear. The ACR still manages many of them, not all of them, the societies. But really, again, the key here is the collaboration. Because through things like, and now again, connecting the dots to the ACR, practice parameters used to be called guidelines, right? Practice parameters, appropriateness criteria, we would marry the ASNR's role, putting a neuroradiologist on a PEDS parameter who was also a member of and notable in the ASPNR. And so by being inclusive and recognizing the expertise of the different subspecialty subject matter experts and inviting them to the more general table is a recipe that has worked fairly well. While maintaining for our young and upcoming next generations, maintaining a strong basic, present your first paper here, series of XYZ in COVID, maintaining a curriculum that they can access and maintaining a forum for them to bring their work. We've been fortunate to be successful, again, through mostly collaboration. I think it's fair to say that for most radiologists, the AMA and its role is less well-known than radiology societies and radiology-specific organizations. Perhaps you could talk a bit about the role of radiology within the AMA 
and the value proposition for radiologists to formally engage with the AMA? So it's interesting. And perhaps one of the reasons why radiologists are less engaged or involved or aware of is because of the strength of our ACR. If you think of it broadly, the ACR is sort of the AMA for radiology when it comes to health policy and reimbursement issues, as well as quality and safety issues. Not to say that the various subspecialties in radiology don't pay any attention to those topics, but not with the intensity and the focus and the resources that the ACR does. So it's sort of a double-edged sword that with counting on the ACR, and I'll editorialize here, it's sad that practices can cannibalize by having one person be a member of the ACR, yet everyone benefits from the same advocacy efforts. But I'll get off that soapbox that could be a reason why they are less tuned into the AMA. A second reason, I think, is that for a long time, the AMA conundrum was specialties writ large, radiology being one of them, versus the state chapters. And as though you needed a third contender, the primary care docs. So while a state chapter might have some primary care and some specialists, just by virtue of the numbers, the primary care predominated. And so many specialties are under the misconception that they don't really have a voice at the AMA. So why bother? Well, here's why bother, and here's the answer to your value proposition. There's this pesky little process called the ROC, the Relative Value Update Committee, and then the CPT coding industry, right, current procedural terminology, that happens through the AMA. And any society's seat in the room for either of those processes and the voice that's attached to the seat is dependent on their percentage of members who are also AMA members. So the value proposition, being quite blunt about it, is do you or don't you want a seat at the table? And those processes remain very important. What roles have you pursued within the AMA? I've been a delegate representing neuroradiology, probably the longest role that I've played. And then I completed two full terms, eventually serving as chair of the AMA's Council on Medical Education. And I'll tell you, if ever you wanted a personal education in the alphabet soup that controls the medical education processes, whether it's the accreditation of schools through the LCME or the certification of physicians through the various boards and the different roles that are played by ACGME and LCME, the roles played by the 
Sports Umbrella Society, the role played by the ACCME, the Accrediting Committee for Continuing Medical Education. So you might have a great meeting up your sleeve, Jeff, but you're not going to be able to give CME for it unless they approve. And just understanding all of those different moving pieces, let alone trying to understand the NRMP, the National Residency Matching Program. And it was exciting to be on the council at a time when there became a single accreditation system for both the MD and the DO. So that was an eight-year stint on the council, a much longer stint as a delegate. And then I'm in my last year of being a board member on the AMA Foundation. And that has to do with a belief in giving back. It's extremely satisfying work at the AMA Foundation. But I termed out of the council and I will term out of the foundation and I will still be a delegate, but bringing up others to assume that role as well. So at this moment of terming out, as you describe it, when you look back at the accomplishments that you have seen or overseen, which are you most proud? I would say the kids that still keep in touch. Bello, can you help me write a application for my fellowship training program I want to start? Bello, can you edit this? Bello, take a look at this. I was asked to write a memory of someone who just passed. When the same kid asked me that favor twice, I said, listen, you better get good at this soon because someday it'll be me and I'm not going to be there to help you. But it's maintaining those relationships over time. And again, in no small part, because you feel the appreciation. So there's a little bit of a selfish piece to it as well. But that's what I'm most proud of. So finally, let's turn to the ACR, where you currently serve as chair of the Board of Chancellors. The most active phase of your engagement with the ACR appears to begin in the same 2009-2010 timeframe, although I believe this was preceded by a period of service as a counselor from the state of New York. Tell us about your role as counselor and how that led to your blossoming involvement with the college. It's similar to the role of being a delegate at the AMA. You're going to school, in a sense, to see how the organization works, to see how resolutions come up, to see how they're handled, to see the role of the council steering committee, the nominating committee, the role of the board of chancellors, the importance of the different commissions, and you really watch wide-eyed the strength of the advocacy in government relations that the ACR is able to leverage and parlay into positive outcomes. We're facing that Olympic sport right now, the year-end Olympic sport of mitigating the Medicare cuts. The past two years totaled so I'm looking at calendar 20 and calendar 21, we were able to mitigate 1.2 billion with a B dollars in cuts for the practicing radiologists in this country. It was 700 million the first year and just under 500 million the second year that was saved. And this year, 
the challenge before us is facing a 10% cut. And that includes a 4.48% drop in the conversion factor. That's the cute little number that gets multiplied by the RVUs for reimbursement. We've got 2% of sequester, if that is going to remain with us. We have a 4% as part of PAYGO that has been put off for four years. I don't know of any profession that can take a 10% hit in one year and keep on serving the population that we've just seen through a pandemic. You know, there's still plenty more ahead. That's heavy work. There's a lot being done, and I appreciate your articulating that. I wonder if you might take us through the arc of your work at the ACR leading to and including your service on the Board of Chancellors. Sure. So as a New York State counselor, and you do need to be a counselor to run for office, and I think it's because you need to go to school and see how the organization really does work. I was elected to the council nominating committee, and that is a two-year post. And you are the committee that sees the applications that were just due by the deadline of December 8th for folks who want to run for positions on the council nominating committee, the council steering committee, and the board of chancellors. The next step after the nominating committee was the council steering committee. And as with the board, there's a percentage of the council steering committee that is elected and a percentage that is appointed. I served on the council steering committee where your role is really to represent the council when it's not in session and it's in session once a year in the spring in Washington, where it can function in advocacy roles as well, although that got truncated during COVID, and more recently for just general security reasons. Talk about Olympic sports. It's impossible to use the underground tunnels at the Capitol efficiently with the new security that's in place. So although we were in person last year, we did not have an in-person lobby day. But back to the council steering committee, they run the annual meeting. They design it, including the open mic sessions. They carefully evaluate it and then redesign it for the next year. They form task forces as need be to look at things like board certification, and the pain points that occur there, and to look at non-physician radiology providers. That's an important role because we are a member-driven organization. And so you are the link between the council and the membership at large and the college's leadership. And then there's the board of chancellors. I was really privileged to be asked to serve on the Commission on Quality and Safety. And starting with quality education and starting with quality for patients, it really is our winning suit in radiology. And I think we don't take enough advantage of it. Rather than fight over turf, just describe the difference in training 
when it comes to quality education. Rather than fight over reimbursement schemes, demand accreditation for modalities that can get it all wrong. And a big part of that is across the ACR, educating the legislators. It's embarrassing that 94% of the current Congress has zero experience in health care. And the 6% that does, many of them lawyers, right? They might have done the contracting for the private hospital or health system. And that's not really finger on the pulse of health care. It's a step removed from that. So a big part of it is the need to educate. But as I said, when you're playing, you're holding the hand that contains the trump cards, if you will, of quality and safety. This is for patients. Even when it comes to things like our most recent lawsuit, the No Surprises Act, it's going to impact patient access. If practices can't keep their doors open and their lights on, it's going to be even less access for screening procedures. So you're going to pay the high cost for chronic disease and cancer is becoming a chronic disease rather than paying the smaller amounts for screening up front. And it's doing that basic kind of advocacy, basic kind of education and basic fight to the finish that it takes. And again, it's taking on a challenge. You have served as member of the ACR General Small and Rural Practices Committee. As an academic radiologist practicing in the densest urban environment in the country, what led your involvement on this committee? It includes emergency. And I'll tell you that Montefiore, because of its track record, had $20 million added to a bid that we were making to take over a hospital. New York had already decided no beds. It cannot be a hospital and turn it into an ER. New York State was the last state to have a freestanding ER hospital. I'm not talking about urgent care on every corner of every street. I'm talking about emergency where somebody with an acute appendix can get shuttled to a hospital bed in the system, but not in that building. And so I belong there because of the emergency care that we provide in the Bronx. I also belong there because my dad and Peter's dad, my husband's dad, they were both Navy men. And part of GSER, but we don't put it in the alphabet suit, is the military. It quite literally breaks my heart that our Congress people have health care access for a lifetime that those who serve in our military don't. In terms of the caliber, I get it that they can go to a VA. You can also die waiting to be seen at a VA. That's something that's very near and dear to me. 
So, of course, you're now chair of the Board of Chancellors. Did you aspire to that role when you began your engagement with the ACR? So the answer to that question is that if I aspired to it, I was crazy, let me tell you. But no, I don't have a regret. It has been quite the ride, I will tell you, having a lot to do with the divisiveness that we see everywhere in our lives, whether it's politically, whether it's over the right economic recipe for our country, even across the spiritual sphere, we've got to be divided now. And I think that way too much of that carries over into how we conduct our business. I'll give you an example. The ACR issued a statement after the Dobbs decision came out. And many people say, you know, you've got something right when half of the people applaud you and the other half disagree with you. You know, quoting Abraham Lincoln, you can't please everyone all the time, right? But he's also a man who stood by his conviction and told his cabinet, after one vote in particular, he told them, gentlemen, the vote is 11 to 1 and the ones have it because he was going to stick to his principles. And so I think that by sticking to the principle that, Jeff, we were doctors before we were radiologists. Doctors have a relationship with their patient. And it is one that is predicated on trust. Trust, by the way, which happens to be the most important ingredient when it comes to success in leadership. So why take issue with a statement that had to do with a doctor's relationship to their patient and protecting the sanctity of that relationship? Didn't have to do with red, didn't have to do with blue, didn't have to do with being of a certain religious belief or not. But People looking for something to utz about will find something. That's why I said tongue-in-cheek. If I aspired to it, I was crazy. But no, I didn't. I looked to do meaningful work. I found it in quality and safety. And now as board chair, being asked to think ahead as I was asked to think about vice chair, and be asked to think ahead about succession, you look at the people around the table and you look at those who can find common ground while holding on to the important ground. So some people are into this just for the chance to be heard, just for the chance to vote red or vote blue which is what our legislators are doing. They are not speaking to each other. And I don't know any one of us in any kind of a practice who would tolerate paying somebody, whether it's an attending radiologist, a technologist, a nurse, a bookkeeper, paying somebody not to do their job. And that's the part that is so unsettling, that people are going color-coded 
or otherwise coded, you know, after this, it'll be guns, or after that, it'll be drugs. It sort of takes leapfrog jumps away from the very basic tenets of why we're here, the oath we take, and the plan that we've agreed to follow. What are your primary goals as the chair of the Board of Chancellors? You know, I've said it at a couple of board meetings, and there'll be another earful in January, because really my goal is unity of purpose. You know, we don't have to be one in opinion, but we're going to get a heck of a lot further being one in spirit. And, you know, it brings me back to cheerleading and other ACR leaders call me, except I called myself the name first, Pollyanna. You know, I'll wear the name proudly if it means we make progress. But I think unity of purpose. I think that no matter the issue, if you break it down into purposeful chunks, I think that the similarities of spirit, even if not opinion, are going to be a lot stronger than the differences. It seems that a number of your predecessors in this role have focused on the new programs that they would introduce, the signature programs. What I'm hearing is an investment in culture and that your focus is more on helping to evolve and stabilize the culture as opposed to any specific programs. Right. Not without programming, though. I'm very proud of health equity despite the fact that somebody on Engage, after I participated in a panel, bothered to write when it comes to health equity. I don't know if you want profane language or not, but go to H-E-L-L. But I'm very proud of health equity efforts. And as I told my fellow leaders on a leadership call that I may well end up in that place, But if I do end up in H-E-L-L, I'll have a lot more fun getting there than by doing health equity. And I'm proud of our population health efforts. And I'm proud, but a little behind in launching it, of our environmental sustainability efforts. But not any one of those programs is going to get anywhere without a sense of unity in purpose. It's just not going to happen. And what processes, what procedures, what activities do you foresee helping to achieve that unity? One of the projects for the January board meeting is to invite the board to establish board norms. And that's sort of our operating principles. It's not a code of conduct. It's not a conflict of interest policy. It is norms, like we will be prepared. We will treat each other with respect. You know, it's back to Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts practically. But I think that norms are critical to productivity. I really do. And so that's one vehicle. And another is transparent communication. I have said from the get-go, always, I have no secrets and no boyfriends. 
and there need not be secrets. And I think that part of the distrust of there being secrets comes again from this need to divide rather than unite. Those are the vehicles. As you take a step back and survey our field, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear how you might view a SWOT analysis of the field of radiology as we come to the end of 2022. And I realize that's potentially a very, very large topic. But, you know, if you could maybe just kind of give us a skim of the things that you see, you know, as some of our key strengths at this moment in time and our key opportunities and threats. I think one of our key strengths is our central role whether it's a medical problem, a surgical problem, an adult problem, a pediatric problem, a behavioral problem that needs absolutely no imaging. So stop ordering. Our strength is the fact that we are at the center of healthcare. I think that's also an opportunity for us because we should be a natural convener. Okay, we know them all. We know how they think. So why not take that opportunity? I think one of our weaknesses right now is our workforce, sheer numbers, and what it's doing to us, both in terms of burnout, which is a threat, the weakness in numbers of our workforce. We've got to find ways around it. Again, anyone smart enough and honest enough to work with us can work with us on a physician-led team. And let's promote similar AMA lingo truth in the advertising so that Nancy Nurse is not introducing herself as Dr. Nancy Nurse. We owe that to our patients. But that's a definite weakness that we need to get ahead of. And I think one way to do it is this physician-led teams. And as much as people consider it beating their heads against the wall, get creative about financing more slots for graduate medical education. Because our specialty is too important and plays too critical a role to just let go of. Another threat is AI. I think, fortunately, our relationship with the FDA, speaking of ACR's relationship, is helping us there because we don't have to be the bad guy. Let the FDA blow the whistle on the large vessel occlusion algorithm that doesn't quite perform at 90%, which is what the label on the box says. And we're proud to have been part of the study that established that. I think that it is a threat, but again, it's a manageable threat with the right people in place. And I think we have those people. And I think, again, trust, we have the credibility, which is what matters. So I think we are strong. I think we do have a weakness. I think there's plenty of opportunity. And I think even our medical students and our residents now realize the opportunity that we aren't just in a room in the back, in the corner, in the dark. We are real doctors 
And I think that those who were afraid of AI are the first ones lining up to write the code or fix the code or be involved with the next algorithm. Phenomenal perspective. I want to return to home base for a moment and not lose sight of the active engagement that you've had within Montefiore, including four years as president of the medical staff and physician representative of the board of trustees. Amongst all of your local radiology and societal roles, what led you to take this on to your portfolio? Being asked by the CEO to be put on the ballot with the announcement that he was putting no one else on the ballot, so he hopes I say yes. And again, it was a challenge, but I will tell you, I've never been more fond than the time I spent with the trustees, because again, it was an opportunity to educate. And I was later thanked by the chair of the board of trustees for translating medicine into English for them. And some of them continue to reach out to me. I think the drug here is the satisfaction that you get doing it and knowing that you've made a difference in their understanding of why something's important or why it's not. That's a real gift. And it is impressive to me that the CEO had sufficient exposure to you to boldly go forward and to suggest you should be the only one nominated to the role. Maybe unpack the interactions that you had had with the CEO to provide them with that perspective. Sure. Part of that began with our establishing the stroke program that we did at Montefiore. And one of the vice presidents, not the CEO, but one of the vice president's mother came in with a stroke. And another one's kid had a headache and turns out had an intracranial, thankfully benign, tumor. And it's through those clinical interactions and explanations. And I think the explanations is a huge part of it. Because in many cases, not necessarily the trustees, Our CEOs during my shift at Montefiore have all been physicians. And yet, what they do every day does not necessarily mean that they're going to understand my medical speak if I just rattle off what I think the diagnosis is. And so it takes saying to them, well, you remember the spinal cord is built backwards, compared to the brain. The white matter is on the outside. And so the reason why this VP's son does not have MS is because the signal is on the inside. And that means it's gray matter, it's transverse myelitis, it'll most likely be monophasic, and he'll get over it. And the response I get back is, wow, That's really clear. Thank you. And this was the CEO. It wasn't their son, so I'm not breaking HIPAA. It was some unknown VP's son politely reminding the CEO of the anatomy and the reasons why and with what certainty. I don't have to always be right, but I will always explain why I think what it is. And one of our prior CEOs who's now deceased, so again, there is no HIPAA, called me personally once 
to ask my opinion on his scan. And I said, you know, I did review it with the neurologist. I'm happy to also review it with you. Yeah, I know, Jackie, but they dance around the bush and you're not going to lie to me. And I didn't. I didn't. I said, it's not good news. And they can include those other things in the differential diagnosis. But it's not good news. And I think that, you know, we always want to win. But we're not going to. But we have to remember that there are two parts to health care. It's with the health that we're not always going to win. But when it comes to the caring, there is no excuse for losing unless we choose to. They watched me go through those different CEO experiences. One of the prior CEOs called me once and my assistant passed it into the angio room. I had just put a patient on the table. There was not going to be anesthesia involved in this case. And I'm going to make up the patient's name right now. I'm going to call her Mrs. Diaz. And the angiotech came and said, Dr. Bello, your assistant's on the phone. And she said that Dr. So-and-so wants to speak to you. And I said, she can tell Dr. So-and-so that if Mrs. Diaz is willing to wait a couple of minutes for me to start the procedure, then I will come to the phone. I'll explain to her there's a doctor on the phone who needs help with a patient. And just to put it in perspective, I mean, Mrs. Diaz was an outpatient for an elective angio. And it's amazing how we make mountains out of, I was going to say molehills, but trustee hills. This was the grandson of a trustee who had an abnormal temporal bone and they wanted to fly on a family vacation tomorrow. Can he still fly? And it was a congenital cholesteatoma and the kid could fly. Mrs. Diaz, by the way, said, yes, please help that doctor help the patient and then come back and help me. But I wasn't afraid to say that to the CEO. And it sends a message to the tech and it sends a message to the patient. And if it had been an emergency, the CEO would have said so. Being you, being who you are, was what the CEO was responding to, was aware of. And I mean, it's such a powerful message, I think, that that's what people see and that's what they respond to. You know, living it and showing it means a lot more than just saying it, saying that that's what you want. Leadership can be stressful. Over the years, what have you found to be most effective for you to unwind and recharge? It's changed over the years. I love sports. You know, when you're super stressed, you can't pick up a tennis racket and play tennis. But I enjoy both tennis and golf. I love to read. And I'll tell you, I love music. And I will sit and listen to music. I played the piano for years. I chose only schools to apply to that had practice rooms. I can count on one hand the number of times I practiced at Dartmouth because I was so intent at doing well. You know, you tell yourself you don't have time for that. But I will listen to music and I will more often than not use my dance partner for life as a sounding board. 
and I will say, sweetie, this is the deal. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And sometimes I know what the answer is going to be, but just hearing yourself put it in those terms sorts it out for yourself. And I'm like, really? You got this, you know? But having, again, that trusted sounding board, having, I mean, I said it of my family as well, built in best friends and strong ingredients from the get-go. You know, another thing my dad always told us was don't worry about the icing. You need to have the cake first. You've got the cake and the stress is the icing. You're not always right, but you've got the cake. And so spending time with family, another important pursuit for you. It seems that you get a lot of energy. You particularly talk about your dance partner for life. And how do you two carve out the time? It seems that you're both very busy. We are, but I'll tell you a true story. This was my freest weekend before the Christmas holiday, since I'm working a full shift next Saturday. And I got a call on Saturday from one of the sons. By any chance, can the two of you come to Sarah's piano recital tomorrow? I'm like, oh my gosh, there goes half of one of two free days before the holidays. And the answer was yes. The answer was yes. And let me tell you, Sarah went last in the recital, which if you know music performances meant that she was thought to be the most accomplished by her teacher. We had to sit through quite a few twinkle, twinkle little stars, one from a four-year-old. This piano teacher teaches a four-year-old. Anyway, hearing Sarah play the song from The Who, she played two classical pieces first, and then a song from The Who, complete with all the rippling effects, and have her say afterwards, my favorite title, you've mentioned a few, but thanks for coming, Grammy J. You know, that's the kind of energy. Let me tell you, hearing that song played so beautifully. At my prime, I could not have played that song that way. And I'm way past that. It was just, talk about energizing. Fantastic. What advice would you give a young physician who is inspired by your journey and would like to pursue leadership? I would say, listen, be you, but spend a whole lot of time listening. On the occasion of his 50th anniversary, graduating from Columbia Medical School, I established in my dad's name an award to be given to a graduating senior who best demonstrates the art of listening in medicine. And then it's qualified to their patients, to their colleagues, and to themselves. Because unless you listen to the voice inside of you that says, you know what's right, or be you, or say what you're thinking, you're not doing anyone, least of all yourself, a favor. So I would honestly say, listen. Dr. Jacqueline Bellow, you have 
provided an inspirational framework for sharing your authentic self as a basis for leadership and what you have accomplished through the person that you are and the way that you have brought that forward to us has really been exciting to me to participate in this conversation and listen to you describe your journey. I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Taking the Lead. Jeff, I want to thank you. You've given me a gift today and it's getting to know you a bit better. So back at you. Thank you. Please join me next month when I speak with Dr. Jonathan Kreskel, Chair of the Department of Radiology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, Professor of Radiology at the Harvard School of Medicine, and immediate past president of the American Rankin Ray Society. As past chair of the Quality Management Committee of the American College of Radiology and past chair of the Quality Improvement Committee of the Radiological Society of North America, Dr. Kruskal is an expert on the establishment and management of radiology quality programs within health systems. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead. Taking the Lead.